Hello and welcome to Plugged In Politics, where we keep you plugged into the policy stakes and drama on Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Jace Wilkie, and today we've got a lot of stuff to dive into. So starting off the show today, we have Nikki Haley announcing her presidential campaign. We have GOP lawmakers introducing a bill to abolish the Department of Education, and the Ohio train derailment gains traction for a Senate probe. But before we get started, please make sure to go on ahead and support the show on Twitter at Politics Plugged, and make sure to help your boy out by sharing the podcast. Look, guys, I'm going to be real here. I need y'all to share it with your parents, grandparents, your tax advisor. Hell, not even your pets are safe from shameless plugs. So without any further ado, let's get straight into it. So former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley has announced her campaign for president in 2024. Now, she is the first challenger to step into the ring with former President Donald Trump, which, in my opinion, is going to be a bit of a bit of a slaughter fest. I mean, if you're the first one in the ring and you're kind of by yourself with no backup, you're kind of fucked. But let's see what she's got in store for her campaign, all right? So let, let, let's toss her a bone, give her the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ, I can't believe I'm saying that. But we're going to go on ahead and play her campaign advertisement, give it a listen, see what she's saying, and we'll go from there must turn in that direction again. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. That has to change. Joe Biden's record is abysmal, but that shouldn't come as a surprise. The Washington establishment has failed us over and over and over again. It's time for a new generation of leadership to rediscover fiscal responsibility, secure our border, and strengthen our country, our pride, and our purpose. Some people look at America and see vulnerability. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. Okay, so just for context, that was about basically the last third of the advertisement because the original ad was around uh, three and a half minutes and I didn't want you guys subjected to that kind of torture. I didn't want to be subjected to that kind of torture. So, you know, bada bing, bada boom. It works out for both of us. But now let's go on ahead and analyze this advertisement. So I find it to be incredibly unoriginal. Like it is copy and paste every single conservative campaign advertisement I've ever seen in my fucking life. I mean, even down to the music, okay? You have your classic cliche, uh, mind you, cliche strings and orchestral buildup halfway through the video to symbolize the patriotic swells of our forefathers, and you better vote, goddammit! Okay, but that aside, and <laughs> presentation aside, it comes off as incredibly uninspired. It's really lacking in energy, and basically it's mainly clinging to the idea that Republicans need to move in a new direction, which isn't a bad idea, and it's kind of original, at least in this current time with the GOP dynamics, especially with the idea that it needs to be younger people leading the charge, a new generation. But at the same time, that is kind of a general consensus within the party, as uh, congressmen and senators are getting younger for the GOP. Now, what I do find unique about her campaign, uh, at least the rhetoric anyway, because let's get it out there before everyone else on planet fucking Earth hears it. Well, her parents were immigrant Sikhs from India. So, yeah, she does have some stake to, that, to the ID politics of this entire thing. 
and it made it pretty clear, at least in her approach on the campaign advertisement and some interviews and even her campaign launch speech, that she is going to be leaning into that idea of her identity and using that aspect for at least some public points, which on its own in a vacuum is not a bad idea. But then you got to take a second and remember, you are a part of the fucking Republican Party. Since when did they give a shit about women of color or identity politics at large? Read, read your audience, read the room. But that aside, let's go on ahead and take a look at exactly what Nikki Haley, uh, the dynamics of her campaign are looking like right now. But let's look at a few other uh, things that she's kind of putting forward in this uh, campaign idea. Uh, for example, one of the big things that she's kind of put forward, which kind of fits back into the idea that she's inspiring, trying to get people to be uh, younger within the GOP party, within the establishment, and politics at large, and that's the idea that she wants to establish mandatory competency tests for older politicians, which in a vacuum is not a bad idea. I just want to see what the purpose of this was. Is it purely because of the idea that Joe Biden is president and the meme is that he's like, you know, dying of dementia? Possibly, and that probably is the case. But then you also have members like Senator Dianne Feinstein. You have uh, Donald Trump, who's in his 70s, as well as just other long-term establishment Republicans and Democrats that are just dinosaurs. But here's another thing, though. We are talking about people who are actively writing books and actively having pretty mentally uh, engaged lives, even at their age. So even if you do institute mental competency tests, I have a hard time saying that you're going to get anything substantive out of it. But then moving on from there, how about the entire election uh, dynamics at large? I think most interestingly, one of the first things we should talk about is that is a dynamic with South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. So as recently, Tim Scott looks like he's on a potential campaign trail of his own. So let's let's give the rundown here. Well, Tim Scott right now is in the midst of a national speaking tour, as well as talking with uh, potential financiers, fundraisers, and other members within the GOP money machine that appear to basically be setting up the pieces for a potential campaign run. But here's the thing, though. Tim Scott obviously has not announced anything yet. Haley was the first one to jump in the ring, so she does have the first momentum. But the idea that Tim Scott is still, whether or not he's decided to run, it's still kind of looming in the background. And since they both pull from the same audience and they both pull from the same constituency, if they both go in at once, it's going to pull from both of their audiences. And that's already going to be devastating enough for Nikki Haley, seeing that, as according to the Reuters Ipsos poll, she's polling at four fucking percent. So <laughs> she doesn't she doesn't stand much of a chance in hell. And uh, I'm going to go on ahead and comment on something that little bit of a tangent, a little bit of a conspiracy theory of my own, you know, I, I personally believe this. Nikki Haley, in my opinion, does not have any semblance of charisma in my eyes. To me, she doesn't have like any energy when she speaks. She doesn't have much conviction when she talks. And I personally think she is the product of a scientific laboratory experiment done by interest groups in order to have a money-hungry like uh, centrist corporatist in power because that's essentially been what her policies have been this entire time granted she was the un ambassador under the donald trump administration but aside from that she's basically sort of served corporate interests her entire life 
But now that we're back to Earth, I can step off my, uh, you know, my little soapbox and let's continue talking about the real issues. So we already addressed the Tim Scott situation. So how does Nikki Haley fit into the entire dynamic of the GOP primary with Donald Trump and potentially Ron DeSantis? So according to that same Reuters and Ipsos poll that I mentioned earlier, Donald Trump is receiving about 43% of uh, the vote from registered Republicans. Uh, 31% are also going to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. So clearly it doesn't seem like Nikki Haley is really uh, offering much of substance. So at this point in time, honestly, I would say it's probably in Trump's best interest that the more people hop onto the campaign trail, the better off he's going to be. Because I think it's been pretty clear at this point in time that Donald Trump has a specific base that will never leave him. What that number is, I cannot be certain. In my estimates, I'm going to say about 25 to 40% of Republican voters will just never leave him. Granted, that's a wide number. That's a pretty big margin. But it's hard to tell because sometimes he's swinging 45%. Sometimes he's swinging at 30 It just depends on the day you look at it. But I think given that range, it's not a bad, it's not a bad place to start it. But with that in mind, we also got to keep it, we also got to like remember that when it comes to the GOP establishment, it's pretty clear that they want to get him the fuck out of there. I mean, we got the Coke network. We have the main GOP uh, front runners as far as old corporate money, uh, the centrists, moderates, etc. And the idea would be like the ideal candidate for that wing of the party would be Ron DeSantis. I, I, I just think it's a pretty straightforward straightforward deal. But if everyone and their mother who is a moderate jumps on board this primary, they're going to be siphoning off support for Ron DeSantis. And it's just going to leave Trump in better shape each goddamn time someone joins. And it's really, really, really fucking stupid that all of these people all at once think, me, 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 I'm going to be president. I'm going to be president. Me, 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 me. Even though they are not popular, no one gives a shit about them. No one even knows who the fuck they are. No one knows who they are. And with that being the case, why fucking run except for your own ego? If you have the collective interest in getting Donald Trump out of power, the best thing you can do is just stay the fuck out. Stay on the sidelines. Get your ass back. Be the bench warmer. Okay? No one's voting for Mike Pompeo. No one's voting for John Bolton. And no one's going to vote for Nikki Haley. I'm just gonna be I'm just gonna be straightforward with that. I think this is a dumb idea. Because a lot of it comes down to like what I said earlier. There's no energy from any of these candidates. There's there's no popular appeal behind it. There is nothing. There is nothing but a corporate husk of a human being there. But again, granted Nikki Haley joining has made some waves online and through through media and the news. It's not gonna last long. It's not gonna last longer than a few months in 2023, and that's about it. She'll maybe get like a couple of headlines during the actual primary next year, but <sighs> it's just a waste of sound waves at this point. So earlier this month, Kentucky Representative Thomas Massey introduced a bill that would abolish the Department of Education, but here's the catch. It's a short one sentence read saying, quote, the Department of Education shall terminate on December 31st of 2023, end quote. So, wow, Jesus Christ. Okay, this is, we got a lot to dive into here. So I'm reading this out of the Business Insider, an article that they posted on this. So let's go ahead and give it a read. So when Insider asked Massey how abolishing the department would impact programs and laws that specifically rely on the department, he said that, quote, 
Unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. should not be in charge of our children's intellectual and moral development. End quote. He then went on to say that states and local communities are best positioned to shape curricula and meet the needs of the students, and parents have the right to choose the most appropriate and educational opportunities for their children, uh, whether that be public school, private school, or homeschool. Okay, so, wow. Uh, what the fuck? So, let's make no mistake about this. They, it's been no secret that the GOP has been basically declaring war on education, on educators, and public schooling. Now, a lot of this does come down to the fact that they do have stakes in promoting and essentially making it more incentivized to be within private schooling because, well, that makes the most amount of money. There's a lot of lobbying behind that, so that really doesn't come as much of a surprise to me, but this is one of the most bold moves that they've made so far. And before we go any further into this story, I'd like to at least mention the co-sponsors for this. Uh, we have Representative Andy Biggs out of Arizona, Dan Bishop out of North Carolina, fucking Lauren Boebert out of Colorado, Eric Burleson from Missouri, Harriet Hageman out of Wyoming, Rich McCormick out of Georgia, Mary Miller out of Illinois, and Representative Chip Roy out of Texas. Now, if you guys are listening to this and happen to be a constituent for any of these representatives, you can find their contact information and constituent outreach on their congressional websites. But also keep in mind, out of the names that I mentioned there, a lot of them do hail from you know, the aforementioned Freedom Caucus, and this is just another one of the clear signs that they're declaring war on anything happy in life. I mean, for example, uh, Congress recently approved, uh, you know, a $1.7 trillion budget for the government, which included $79.6 billion for the Department of Education. On that funding, $45 billion of that was going to K-12 programs, the majority of which is going to be allocated to grants for low-income neighborhoods and special education programs. So, Thomas Massey, let me, let me get, this, get this straight. You are willing to defund special education programs, and initiatives to support children in low-income areas. But wait, there's more. Additionally, the Department of Education is in charge of distributing $30 billion worth of going into higher education and federal student aid funding, including loans and Pell Grants. So not only are you leaving children out in the dry, you are going to basically put the lives and the futures of our college students, students which are going to be key contributors to the economy in the future, one that is possibly reeling from a re potential recession, and this is your priority? To leave them hanging out to dry? Fuck you, man. So if the department were to be eliminated, those programs would either be gone or transferred to a new agency, which would preclude the budgetary savings that Republicans are hoping for. Still, Massey isn't the only Republican who has spearheaded such an effort. Uh, back in 2015, uh, Florida Senator Marco Rubio, who was running for president at the time, said during a town hall that, quote, I honestly think we don't need a Department of Education, end quote. And he said that overseeing the student loan program could be transferred to other agencies. Let's, let's be clear here. The GOP fucking hates the idea of alleviating student loans. It's a money industry. There's no incentive for them to alleviate student loan debt or to even provide grants or funding for people for education. It's just a way to siphon money. Let's, let's be real here. But also, let's take a second to realize just how far back this war against the Department of Education by Republicans really goes. So, Republican efforts against the department go back to right during its conception. Massey's press release noted that one year after the department was created in 1980, then-President Ronald Reagan launched his effort to eliminate the energy and education departments. 
saying at the time that education is the principal responsibility of local school systems, teachers, citizen boards, and state governments. By eliminating the Department of Education less than two years after it was created, we can not only reduce the budget, but ensure that local needs and preferences, rather than the wishes of Washington, determine the education of our children. End quote. Now, obviously, these efforts to eliminate the department were clearly unsuccessful, given that both of those agencies are operating at full capacity today, and millions of Americans are now relying on the Education Department's Federal Student Aid Office. So, fuck you, Reagan. But it's also important to note, though, that as alarming of a bill as this is, it's nearly impossible to get rid of a department. So if Massey's bill even progresses, let's say it gets past the House, it's up to him to confront the challenges of killing or reallocating billions of dollars in programs. And let's be real here, guys. Even if, let's say it makes it to the Senate, there's no way in hell it's passing. And even by some ridiculously cursed timeline bullshit, it does happen. There's no way that the Biden administration would let this go. It'd be a clear and obvious veto. And then there would be no uh, majority power to override a veto. So there's not really a concern that they're actually going to get rid of it. It's just a really concerning rhetoric, and it's a very kind of irresponsible, loose-from-the-cannon, shooting-from-the-hip perspective of the Republican Party and where it's at now, and it's kind of endemic of the entire brain rot that's consuming the party. But like I said earlier, if any of you listening happen to be a constituent for any of the co-sponsors I previously mentioned, please feel free to contact their constituent outreach, voice your concerns, try your best. They're obviously not going to listen but at least provide that social pressure. Let's be honest, guys. This is the entire reason why Republican rhetoric, campaigns, and image are all predicated on culture war shit. Because I don't think anyone in their right mind would want the Department of Education eliminated. It provides too many benefits for children, for college students, for teachers, etc. And that's why instead of talking about the things that they actually want to pass... They talk about trans issues, or they talk about CRT, or any other bullshit, like Mr. Potato Head, or Big Bird, or the fucking vaccine. It's because they want to distract you, and it's such a clear and obvious con that it's really, it, it, it's hysterical, and I think this is one of the big, you know, removing back the veil, pulling back the curtain, and you really get to see the monster for what it is. <laughs> So U.S. Senators are now weighing the idea of conducting a probe into the Norfolk Southern Railroad freight train incident that occurred in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month. A Norfolk Southern Railroad freight train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. The train was comprised of about 150 cars and 50 were affected. And according to the National Transportation Safety Board, 20 cars contained hazardous materials and 11 of those were impacted by the wreck. Now, one of the main chemicals that have been talked about in this derailment was vinyl chloride, which is used, which is a chemical that is used to produce plastic. So the next day on February 4th, responders discovered contaminated runoff from the derailment impacting the nearby Sulphur Run and Leslie Run streams, according to the EPA. And Norfolk Southern contractors installed booms and underflow dams to restrict the flow of contaminated water. Residents near the derailment were asked to leave the area. Then on February 5th, officials were faced with what were essentially two bad options. Either to allow the car to explode, which, l let's be honest here, would launch deadly shrapnel in a one-mile trajectory and even 
possibly affect citizens, which, which would have had some pretty gnarly consequences. Or vent and burn the chemical. Now, essentially what they would do would just be open up the cars and just burn the chemicals, allow them to just burn. Because there's no way they can transport them, there's no way they can get them out of there, and there's the risk of the train cars literally fucking exploding. So on February 6th, uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania authorities communicated with Norfolk Southern and decided to prevent the explosion. Uh, remaining East Palestine residents with one mile by two mile area surrounding the village were ordered to leave, and Norfolk Southern executed the controlled release and burn of vinyl chloride in five cars around 4.15 p.m. Now, if any of you have been uh, paying attention to the story, this specific burn is what created the large plume that we've seen in photographs from news over the entire village. A federal lawsuit filed on February 16th estimates that 1.1 million pounds of vinyl chloride were spilled during the fire and derailment. In a letter written to Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw on February 14th, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro said Norfolk Southern did not indicate to state and local responders that it was going to vent and burn all five cars with vinyl chloride, rather than just the one that was at risk of exploding. So herein lies the big issue. State officials were only aware, made aware that a single car was at risk of explosion. The rest of the chemicals that were contained in the other cars were salvageable. But rather than notifying and creating a system of uh, like communication that got that across and only burning the single car, they went on ahead and burned all five. Then on February 8th, East Palestine Fire Chief and Incident Commander Keith Drabick and other officials from both states said that the East Palestine residents could safely return home. However, this has all been an incredibly weird story, to say the least. Uh, News Nation correspondent Evan Lambert was arrested for trespassing while attending a DeWine's press conference about the derailment. And in a statement, the East Palestine police said they were at, that they had asked Lambert to stop his live report because he was being, quote, loud, end quote, which resulted in an argument. Police then arrested the broadcast journalist after he refused to leave the area. Uh, he was held in custody for about five hours before he was released, and DeWine said at the end of the press conference that he did not authorize the arrest. So, it's just been a really suspicious uh, approach to the media around this thing, but I would also argue it's been a really, really strange approach from the media in general as well. There's been a lot of concern over the chemical exposure uh, to people within the area, and rightfully so. Vinyl chloride is considered to be a carcinogen, which can cause cancer. As far as according to OSHA, you cannot be exposed to vinyl chloride at one at five parts per trillion, if I'm not mistaken, for an eight-hour time period. To say that you burned it, and the fact that some of the chemicals ran off into the waterways, is really concerning. And it's recently been reported that over 3,000 small fish have died in nearby streams since the incident, as well as other animals such as chickens, cats, dogs... Now, could this be because of other chemicals in the water? Because, guys, it's, it's Ohio. I don't know if, you've, if you know this, but Ohio is kind of a hellscape. So it could be because of chemicals there that were already present. But it is also important to remember that vinyl chloride does interact with animal biological systems much more differently than it does to humans. Humans can take uh, larger exposures to these chemicals without many effects, but that still does not excuse the fact that there was a brazen go-ahead to just burn that much vinyl chloride within a populated residential area. 
As of February 16th, the EPA said that, quote, air monitoring has not detected any levels of health concern in the community that are attributed to the train derailment, end quote. The agency also hasn't detected any contamination in the more than 500 houses surveyed. Now, it's not clear what effect the spill has had in the soil or water, but officials are taking steps to ensure that rainfall did not wash more contaminants into the waterways. It's unlikely that rain itself would pose any risk. The EPA report suggests that vinyl chloride and other chemicals that spilled are not present in the air in high enough amounts to warrant concern for humans. However, there, there's a little bit of a caveat to this thing, because vinyl chloride has a half-life of a day. So for those of you who do not understand or do not take chemistry, half-lives are basically the time at which it takes for a chemical to basically degrade. Like, for example, the uh, radioactive uh, element Einsteinium has a half-life of 20.5 days. When, when it comes to this, basically the chemical properties degrade and turn into something else. Uh, eventually, for a lot of radioactive compounds, granted, I'm only bringing this up as an example because, make no mistake about it, vinyl chloride is not radioactive. I just want to make sure no one misconstrues what I'm saying here. But basically, the reason why I bring up the half-lives with vinyl chloride is the idea that because it has such a short half-life, it probably wasn't in the air when they were measuring or taking samples. The period of exposure to vinyl chloride in the air occurred when it was burning and on that day. Anybody in that area could be hurt. Now, granted, the long-term ramifications probably are not going to be as widespread or as massive as some people are saying. Some people are calling it the, the American Chernobyl. It's not going to be that. It probably isn't. Now, could it have some effects in the waterways? Of course, but there's already there's already awful toxic shit in Ohio waterways or even in the drinking water you or I am drinking right now. But with all that said, how does this fit into the idea of a Senate probe? So senators on both sides of the aisle say that there needs to be a congressional investigation into the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. And it's unclear at the moment whether such a probe would focus more on the rail operator Norfolk Southern or the federal government's safety standards in response to the incident. Senator J.D. Vance, the Republican out of Ohio, said on Tuesday that he certainly supports an investigation, saying that his main concern right now is air and water quality for constituents. Vance sent a letter to the CEO of Norfolk Southern on Wednesday requesting that the company expand its financial reimbursement area to include all residents of East Palestine. Uh, so I didn't mention this earlier, but essentially they gave like five bucks to the residents of East Palestine, but only certain ones as compensation. Yeah, five fucking dollars. Additionally, Senator Vance and Senator Rubio have, have written a letter to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg with questions about the department's oversight of the U.S. freight train system and how it, quote, balances building a safe, resilient rail industry across our country in relation to building a hyper-efficient one with minimal direct human input, end quote. Now, various committees in the Senate have jurisdiction over aspects of the derailment, the Environment and Public Works Committee, which has oversight of the EPA, could examine the agency's handling of affected wildlife, while the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee has oversight of rail safety. Uh, staffers from the Environment and Public Works Committee are, quote, receiving regular updates from the EPA on the environmental impacts of this accident, end quote, a committee aide said. So committee chair Tom Carper from Delaware tweeted on Tuesday that, quote, we must also look for ways to ensure a thorough federal investigation takes place to prevent an incident like this from happening in the future, end quote. 
So essentially, it's looking like there's probably going to be at least discussion of the train derailment and certain legislative steps that can be taken by these committees uh, in the coming weeks, if not months, because this has certainly been an alarming enough of a story that people are paying attention to transportation logistics, safety, and efficiency. And because of that, I think it's going to be one of the biggest uh, upcoming moves in the future for uh, the Senate. It's not like there's going to be much progress made, given the fact of how the Senate and the House are split uh, by the parties. Because whatever legislation takes forward, whether or not it's partisan, it's, it's probably going to get shut down. And that's just the unfortunate reality of this. I feel bad for all the residents of East Palestine. My thoughts go out to them. I know that really doesn't mean much or have much of substance, but... I really hope and wish all the best for them because at the end of the day, if they aren't properly financially compensated for what happened, and if there are long-term ramifications and effects from that chemical exposure, Jesus Christ, man, I, I really hope, I really hope that, that doesn't end up being the case, but <sighs> given how the state of chemical exposure is here in the United States on a, on a daily with PFAS and PFOA, I don't know, man, it's just not good, okay, but we're going to keep an eye on the story. Hopefully there's some kind of investigation into Norfolk Southern and whether and how they burned five cars rather than just one, because I feel like that's just inexcusable. So hopefully there's some justice to be had here. Hopefully residents of East Palestine are healthy, safe, and they didn't just shed, you know, like six years off of their lifespan. All right, that's the end of the podcast. And as always, thank you so much for listening in. If you haven't already, please make sure to support us on Twitter at Politics Plugged, where you can get updates on new current events and more. Make sure to check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor for new episodes every week. And I'll see you in the next one. Take it easy.